I think at this point in the startup's life, it's more important to keep moving, even if you are moving slightly in the wrong direction, then stay and move slowly. Welcome to Product Income Maker. Product businesses promise the biggest upside to break free from the time for money trap and enjoy the product selling itself and scale effortlessly. Yet on the path to success, entrepreneurs run into product market misfit, financial pressures, team dynamics, and self-doubt. This podcast is about how entrepreneurs overcome these challenges and grow profitable product businesses, how they become product income makers. Our guest today is Plush, the co-founder and CEO of Goldcast, a digital events platform which has grown 10x during COVID from 20K MRR early 2021 to 200K MRR 2022, aiming to cross 600K MRR by the end of the year. They closed their 28 million Series A just a couple months ago. Founders are smart young entrepreneurs who dropped out of Harvard Business School to wisely enter the very hot virtual event space just in time when it exploded with a remarkable product experience for events. Palash, you are an inspiring product income maker. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. I'm glad to be here. So Palash, why don't you take 30 seconds, tell us about yourself and how did you discover the pain and the problem through which you decided to start this company and this events experience? So I am an engineer by training. I did electrical engineering. So what was exposed to both computer science and mechanical engineering in undergrad. And then after a brief stint in manufacturing, I spent time in a MarTech company. So I spent four years there building products and leading customer success and sales teams. And at that company, used events a lot for our own B2B go-to-market portion, right? So our company was dependent on events for its pipeline. And so I internalized the importance of events in a B2B company's go-to-market motion while in that company. But I also saw that it was pretty challenging for the execs who were signing on those budgets to know what has come out of events, right? How many conversations did we do? How much sales pipeline did it lead to? Did it actually make an impact? It's always hard to justify. And we used to dread that conversation after we had thrown an event or done a conference. So that's how we knew about this space. And we always thought that events need a makeover in how emails have gone through a makeover or advertising has gone from being TV and billboards to digital. But we never could pinpoint like what that makeover looks like. So when COVID came in, it was obvious that events will become virtual. And our bet was that events will become omnichannel. And it opens up a great opportunity for us to build a platform that can own event marketing as a channel, not only in the delivery of events, which is a complex problem of its own, but in the measurement analytics and ultimately extracting value out of events, which is the missing piece in the whole event tech ecosystem. And our bet was that this particular niche would be big enough for a public company to exist. So that's our goal. That's how we got started. So given the big established players in the marketplace, even in 2020, what did you design product-wise that would have become a successful mousetrap or a successful feature that will make you differentiate back then? And what would it be, in your opinion, going forward in order to sustain that differentiation? Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of context, which will help justify what I'm speaking about. When the market came into being, there were three or four funded like new startups that came in that raised a bunch of money, of which one of them was like really huge. 
And what happened and what we did not anticipate was a host of in-person events fair who had lost their business during COVID. They also pivoted into the space. So the space became very crowded very soon in like a matter of two, three months, similar to what's happening with AI right now, right? And when we dug in, we saw that it happened so fast, right? Everyone had built the product, but no one was actually thinking about what a good product experience is going to be for a particular persona. So what we saw is that a lot of players were coming in to tackle the trade show, huge conference market. So a lot of focus of theirs was on that persona because that's a big market of its own. And what happened is most products ended up being harder to use because they had a lot of bells and whistles. And also they were focused on things that trade shows care about more, which is ticketing, sponsorships, those kind of things. What we realized is that B2B marketers are generally resource strapped. They have a lot to do. So they want a simpler product that can do everything from a webinar all the way up to a big conference, but they don't want like a hundred thousand person conference. So ease of use and simplicity, that scalability was big. The second one was branding. So our product can also almost look like you have done a CSS level branding on it without actually needing the code. So a marketer can do it. They don't even need to know anything. So those were like two 10X product pillars that we focused on in the very early days, like just to get our foot in the door because we said, okay, your event will look like yours. And it will be easy to use so you can run it so you don't need another person to run it and you can run as many events as you want. The core sort of value prop and how we hooked people for the long term was our integrations. So again, our focus here played a big role. So a lot of people were claiming that they have integrations with 50 players, but integrations are hard to get and they mean different things for different people. And we basically picked two integrations, Marketo and HubSpot, which is 80% of the market in B2B. And we really killed it in those two. And that helped us a lot in the early days. So those two, I would say, were the early like 10x features that we focused on, which in hindsight are not obvious. At that point, given there was such a rush to capture this like new demand that people were all over the place and they forgot that it's ultimately the purpose of events is to satisfy some other goal that the event organizer has and events are like a means to an end. So we focused on the end as much as the means and came up with those things. Last question about that value proposition at the very beginning, which I'm curious about, which is making it simpler, right? So you looked at those guys that tried to innovate around massive trade shows with ticketing, and you said, let's make it simpler. In what ways was it simpler perhaps to adopt, perhaps to onboard, or perhaps to use that made it more sticky or made the acquisition easier or more effective? So there were two aspects of to it. One is the attendee experience itself. So as a buyer, I would first see how it looks like as an attendee before I even decide to talk to a customer. And so our attendee experience was actually pretty simple. A lot of players at that time were optimizing, actually all of them were optimizing towards adding as many things as they can, like adding speed networking or adding a bunch of things like surveys and polls. So what happened is it started looking clunky and the attendee experience was not that great. So we focused on simplicity saying, okay, your brand and content is front and center. We'll make things simple so that you can engage people and deliver that brand while making it not overwhelming. The second part is the ease of use for the organizers. So events can be super complex, especially as you go beyond two, 300 people, you want a lot of things. And then there is like a good balance of how much configurability you add and where you say no. And we iterated on that very fast in the four months we were in beta. So we said, okay, anything that requires a marketer to understand like an advanced concept that they don't already know, we should not do it. So it will just be a few toggles, a few things that you can configure. 
but not beyond that. So we deliberately cut on functionality, which was a risky decision at that time. But our bet was that a simpler sort of first onboarding and adoption experience will be worth it for them to realize, okay, maybe I don't need those many bells and whistles. Before we jump into sales and marketing efficiency, can you share with us a few metrics for us to get the context of where you are from sales and marketing perspective? Is it still around the 20K ACV? And then how much are you paying to acquire customers on average? So our ACV currently is at around 30K. So it has increased in this one year from 20 to 30. And our LTV to CAC comes in at around 1.5. So there's a lot of scope to improve there. But And there's a lot of that is also because we, were, we have front-loaded a lot of marketing and sales. So we are still in some kind of ramp-up phases in many things, but that's where we are at. But when you say LTV to CAC is around 1.5, do you mean the whole lifetime taking into account the churn of 20% roughly? Yes. So round about four years, five years-ish lifetime, then that would mean round about 40 to 50K to acquire a new customer? Is that... Yes. So our CAC would lie around 30 to 40 typically. And we assume the lifetime period to be three years just to be conservative right now. So I assume that is why you raise, even though you're growing very fast, as we mentioned at the beginning, this is why you could justify a big raise in order to capture market share, <laughs> even though the LTV to CAC ratio could be healthier down the road. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's one more thing here. What is the overall burn ratio, right? You would have heard of that metric. And just so everyone knows, burn ratio is essentially how much I'm spending overall to bring in an additional dollar of new ARR. And our burn ratio was not awesome, but it looks good for our stage because even though we spend a lot on R&D, our engineering team is in India. So we typically spend like a third of what people in Bay Area engineering teams would. So our burn ratio looks good. Overall, we are able to like front load, heavy load on sales and marketing. Can you share what's the ballpark of the burn ratio? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ours fluctuates between like 1.5 to 2.5 with every quarter. So for every dollar of ARR to bring in, you spend 1.5 to $2 overall. Is that correct? But even though your lifetime is three years, then it make it up around the three years or two to three years lifetime, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Then it absolutely makes sense from investment, from investors' perspective. So now can you share with us what has worked and what hasn't worked from go-to-market perspective? Which experiments you realized are working amazingly and which experiments did not work? So there are a few things that we got on go-to-market. Always our sort of focus was B2B marketers, be event marketers. And from day one, we said we are going to become like that destination where they can and get them the best content events and everything for that specific niche topic, which is B2B event marketers. And in the event world, the focus on the past had been on event planners, which is a very broad persona. Event marketers not only have to throw events, but they are responsible for pipeline. They're marketers first and event people second. So we actually have become a decently well-known entity in that respect that our events and content that we throw do attract a lot of engagement from event marketers who understand that, know that we understand their problems, we talk about their problems in the way that they can recognize. So we have two flagship event series. One is called CMO Diaries, which is 
about general marketing, but we also throw in events. And that happens every week where my co-founder Kishore interviews CMOs, right, from B2B companies. And the other one is event marketer, like where we interview event marketers or VPs of events and talk to them about tactical stuff. That is like, what is like a Salesforce dashboard that you view? When you talk about events or how do you coordinate sales teams, those kind of topics. And the second one actually has been super successful. So we have consistently, even right now where people think there's a virtual event city, there is 120 people who attend that. And we spend almost nothing in promotion for that. So that's been a big hit, that whole bet of being like a media company for event marketers. What we got wrong was that we didn't focus on SEO from the start. And attribution is hard. So we never got to know whether what is working or not. Recently, we started doing what you would call like a light self-reported kind of attribution where we would ask an AE to ask the prospect during the demo because we are not self, so everyone has to come through the AE. They'll ask in the demo, like, where did you hear about us? And a lot of people said Google search, even though we never rank anywhere. We don't spend money on SEM. We don't rank on Google search. So what happened is we focused on this high quality content, but our content volume was always less. So we didn't rank on SEO because SEO requires volumes. So that's been a miss, which we are working to fix, investing heavily on SEO. The other thing that worked for us from a go-to-market perspective, which we were skeptical of early on was BDRs. So we started with two and started seeing success. And then that team has scaled to six PDRs now who are all doing, who are all great. And that works too. I know there's a lot of discussion on LinkedIn about PDR model being dead, but that works. It accounts for at least like 40% of our pipeline. So that would be people who would go with outbound LinkedIn, yes. email, touch points. Yes, absolutely. Using outreach or sales loft or any of these. Exactly. They're using outreach. And the good thing there is that they generally feed off the leads that have come from other bands or content. So they're not going in like super cold, but it works. And I didn't expect it to work. <laughs> Can you share with us, so what works from a sales executive perspective? What is the ballpark quota that you target for them? How long does it take them to ramp? towards a productive point in which they hit their quota and what works and what doesn't? What differentiates the well-performing AEs versus the ones who perhaps are not hitting their quota? Got it. Great question, Matt. <laughs> so our AE quotas, depending on their experience and seniority, would vary between 800K to like 1.2 million per year. And we have around five AEs right now. And we now have a decent understanding of what makes a good AE versus not, right? So the number one thing that we think is important in our AEs is they need to love selling to marketers, right? And it's not trivial for everyone to get excited about marketing technology. And so they have to love to sell to marketers, which is they need to be excited about selling to marketers and also have that personality. Like marketers want people who are easy to talk to, who are jovial, who have that personality, right? Who can engage you, which probably is not a concern in cybersecurity, right? If you're talking to like an IT administrator selling them a hundred grand cybersecurity software, you need to be serious. I think you cannot be jovial in that case. In our case, that's not true. The other thing that works is that our AEs also have, who do well, they are also some kind of like a solutioning expert, given that events are associated with a lot of complexity, right? Because every event will have something unique in the way they will be They'll want to do things. And also generally events is a stressful thing to do. So marketers generally have this thing in the back of their mind that will I be taken care of? Do these guys know what they're talking about? And they are great at taking that 
of sacking that out and giving them exactly what they need to feel comfortable to know that, okay, our product and our team combined can do stuff for them that they care about. So I think those two things being like marketer friendly and great at solutioning is generally what I've found to be hallmarks of great AEs. Can you share with us some challenges that you maybe personally encountered or as a team or as founders and what was the mindset to overcome them? Yes, great question, Art. So one of the challenges that we have always had was at least the first two rounds that we raised. The very first challenge that we realized when we were going to raise a round was we thought that this business cannot be done without venture capital. Because at that time, this was like summers of May and June of 2020. And we only had a deck at that time when there were other players who had raised like 10, 15 million at that time. And the decision in front of us was how do we get into this market? Because we are also immigrants with student visas. So there's no like legit, real, like straightforward way to work full time in the US as entrepreneurs. So there was that problem. There was COVID coming in. I had a kid at home who was like three, four months old. So to take the decision to move out of HPS and figure out a visa in that time, right, which was very tough on immigration. All of this uncertainty was huge. And I had to ultimately as the CEO make the decision, okay, are all three of us going to drop out? If yes, how much are we going to raise? How much are we going to dilute? And I just felt that this is like a change, an industry change that that only comes in not that often, right? It's like coming back to today. It's like the release of GPT-3, right? Those things don't happen often. Those currents don't happen often. So we thought we had the right team and the insight to go after it. And also the other thing is I had been in this phase of like evaluating ideas and almost coming close to going in for four years, I would say. <laughs> so I just wanted to dig in and say, okay, what is the worst that will happen? We might have to come back to business school after two years, which is okay, not the end of the world. So I would say almost a reckless bet to go in at that time. The other challenge that we faced was because we always needed capital to keep up. The understanding of this market is not that deep within VCs. And they tend to view it as a very horizontal, muddled up market that everything is the same. And so it's very hard for us to make the claim that, okay, we are different from X, Y, Z, or this player is focused on that, this player is focused on that, because they believe it's all just one big horizontal. At least most VCs have this. And so if you look at it as, it as one big horizontal, it will look super crowded. And it is a crowded market, but it looks more crowded and tough to digest when you look at it as like one big horizontal. So the way I overcame it, Ohad, is that I have realized, and I think most founders will realize that you cannot convince a VC of the market. You can convince them of yourself, your strategy, your differentiation. But if they are not convinced of the market, you cannot do anything. At least I have not figured out. I'm not Adam Newman that I can sell something out of thin here. I think my strength is more logical reasoning and more strategic conversations and more visionary conversations. And, and I found it that I could not overcome that barrier. So in this race, in this third race that we did, we would, in the first call, I would figure out if someone is actually, they know the market or they are just talking to us because we have good numbers. And then I cut down that time. I went super wide this time. So I spoke to 70 funds almost. Like I got connected to 70 funds, which is huge. And I whittled them down quickly and got to like the end of the funnel, which ended up with two term sheets for us very quickly. And just in time before the markets closed. So the markets were already crashing at that time. But this like realization that I cannot convert the non-believers helped me move faster, close faster. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And maybe you can share... What's the mindset that you entertain in practice 
perhaps during what you shared on a personal level, when you are facing that tough decision, you're just going to go for it. But clearly, correct me if I'm wrong, there's clearly some self-doubts on those moments, perhaps with your family, perhaps with your co-founders. What is the mindset that you practice and then entertain in those moments? <laughs> Great question, Ohad. So I am an optimistic person by design. And so in my head, the way I think is if there's doubt, right, it's better to make a decision and make a logical decision and be optimistic about it than think and not make a decision. I think at this point in the startup's life, it's more important to keep moving, even if you are moving slightly in the wrong direction, then stay and move slowly. That is the mantra that I followed from day one. What is the worst that will happen? The startup will shut down. Not a great outcome, but we'll live with it. We'll learn and fight to see another day. So I think I have internalized the fact that the worst that can happen is also not that bad. And if push comes to shove, I'm fine with the bad outcome. We try to avoid it as much as possible, but I think optimism and realism helps me kind of power through those moments. Can you share some recommendations for tools you love to use, books you like to read or that have impacted you, or blogs and podcasts that you follow that you'd recommend other founders to follow as well? So I am not a blog or a podcast person. So I made a decision like six years back to not read like short form content. And so I've only been reading books since then. I honestly don't read as many business books. I read a lot of history and a lot of popular science and those kind of things. It helps me a lot that it gives me an escape which is also not like watching a Netflix series. So it's very refreshing that it's an escape that is also nurturing my mind. I think if anyone wants to get enthused, they should read popular science because it is the kind of things that are happening in the world and the kind of things we have as human race uncovered, they are super enthusiastic. They give me a lot of optimism in general, which translates indirectly into my work. And I do read business books as well. Some business books that I really recommend would be there's this book called Being a Manager by Linda Hill. She's a professor at HPS, but I read it much before HPS. And, and it's a very nice, like tactical book, actually, about how you can be a great manager. And I think every CEO definitely should read it if you have not managed people at least before, or, or even if you have managed. The other one is just, I'm very big believer in the deep work, digital, non-distraction. I am not a good practitioner of that, so I still get distracted, but like I'm not on Facebook, Instagram, and anything except LinkedIn. And so Cal Newport, Deep Work, Essentialism by Greg McEwen, I think that's one of the classics. Those two books I would recommend for anyone who's feeling overwhelmed by the social media. Can you share opportunities? What are you looking for and what would you like to have come to your table faster? Would it be leads? Would it be acquisitions? Would it be partnerships? Or would it be customers? What are you looking for? We are right now expanding our engineering team and general R&D function, product engineering design. So I am actually looking for active hire opportunities for great founders who are product oriented and great engineering and design teams. So we'll also be excited about the mission that we are on. So any that kind of opportunity, if you're looking for it, I think this Goldcast can be a great place for that. And maybe you can share some insight. Would you look for a team that works on a particular space or something that would be easily integrated or something that would be in the same tech stack or something that would approach the same market like MarkTech? Great question. I think two kind of things are very useful for us. One is people who have built complex and heavy web apps. So making a browser work well, things on browser work well is still challenging. This product is also pretty complex, even though it looks simple. And so I think that one, people with great front-end teams. 
The second one is people who have worked in MarTech, especially in data engineering. So MarTech has a lot of like data engineering problems that are very unique to MarTech. And you have to work with all of these systems like Marketo Salesforce that were designed 20 years back. So that kind of skill set will also help. Amazing. Anything else that you would look for that you would like to say that you would like the audience to know? Yeah. If you are a B2B marketer listening to this podcast or anyone who owns a pipeline target in a company, I'm more than happy to chat. This is a space which is actively going through a lot of upheaval and a lot of changes with its own unique challenges. And so I would just love to hear from you, love to discuss those things with you. And the last thing, which also comes back to the previous topic we were talking about, if there are ex-founders who are looking for their next opportunity, I would love to talk to them. I'm a big fan of people who have been either an ex-founder or had a great side hustle. I think they are absolutely like an asset for a company like us. So anyone of that sort, please feel free to hit me up. I would love to find a role for them if we don't have one already. So Palash, founder of Goldcast, pushed through a difficult personal decision to drop from business school, rely on funding, entered and captured the event space for B2B marketers, aiming to cross 600K MRR by the end of the year, 30K ACV, churn 20%, LTV to CAC ratio 1.5, but with over 100% yearly growth rate, it makes so much sense for investors who funded 28 million in Series A just a couple months ago. Alash, you're an inspiring product income maker. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. For show notes and company KPIs, visit productincomemaker.com. Search through dozens of inspiring product ideas and growth strategies. Visit productincomemaker.com.